I became a Christian when I was about 20 years old, and I'm 43, the last time I checked, and I think my wife affirms that. Sometimes I have to check with her how old I am. But that would mean for 23 years, I've sought to act like a Christian, uh, which, like many of you, that mean, with, when, with many of you, that means I've, I've sought to be the ambassador God says I am. Christians are called ambassadors, and so for 23 years, I've tried to tell people about who God is, uh, who Jesus is, why people need a Savior. Uh, we call it evangelism. It's what we do as new creatures in Christ. Some of you have done it for longer than I have. But for 23 years, I've heard the same thing again and again and again as a response to the gospel. The common response Not everyone, but the most common response someone has given me for 23 years has been, I'm a good person. And lots of you now are going, "Uh uh-huh, I get it. Because you've heard the same thing. Now, some people respond in different ways, but time and time again, you try to explain why someone would need a Savior and who God is, and you try to explain sin, and so many times they say the exact same thing. I'm a good person. Or something similar to that, right? It's interesting that Jesus said in Luke eighteen nineteen, no one is good but God alone. No one is good but God alone. The Apostle Paul, Jesus' Apostle, the one that he commissioned to represent him after Jesus left, said in Romans chapter 3, no one does good, no, not one. Isn't it interesting that we try to explain the gospel to people and the common response so many times, so many, even this week, my neighbor in one ear, out the other, glazed over, look, I'm a good person. Do you think people are inherently good? Do you think that, that you're inherently good? Oh, yes, we could talk about how there, there could be uh, relative good and absolute good and those kinds of things. But right now we're talking about inherent goodness. That God would look on you and say, I accept you, Pat, because you're a good person. Well, Jesus says no one is good except God. And so this morning we're going to be talking about that issue. We're going to be talking about sin. What does it mean to be a sinner? We're doing this mini-series, if you will, before we start our study of the gospel according to Luke, which we'll do uh, in September. But we're doing this mini-series called A Biblical View of Self. As we look in the mirror and say, who am I? How do we respond? We all have a view of self. Last week we talked about being made in the image of God. I commend the study to you. It's available online. That we should look in the mirror and say, I'm made in the image of God. That means I'm I'm different from every other created thing. Somehow uniquely like God. It's an amazing thing. But that's not the only answer we should give when we look in the mirror. We should also say, among other things, and we'll talk about more things in the weeks ahead, I am a sinner. And there are huge implications and ramifications of being a sinner. 
When someone tells me I'm a good person when I'm trying to talk to them about their need for a savior, I know, I know four things at least. I know that they don't know the first thing about Jesus. They might know pop culture Jesus, but they don't know the first thing about Jesus and what he said. I know that they don't know the first thing about the gospel. It must be a genre of music. I know that they don't know the first thing about the Bible. Not the first thing, even if they go to a church with Bible in the name, like this one. I know that they really need someone to love them enough to speak the truth to them. I know that that's the case. So if you're here this morning and you think you're a good person, you're in the right place. So glad you're here. I got news for you. (laughs) Good news, as a matter of fact, after the bad news. You're in the right place, though. You're welcome here. If you're here this morning and you don't think you're a good person, you're in the right place. I want to do all that I can to try to help you, to equip you to understanding why, so that you can even be a more faithful ambassador in communicating with other people, because the common chorus of our surrounding culture, and I'm sure it's been longer than for 23 years, is we're good people, so God will accept us. Hopefully to help this morning, we'll organize our thoughts around seven questions. Seven questions about sin. And I will give you, the, give you the conclusion now. My conclusion will be to quote John the Baptist in saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. He's excited. He's, he's filled with a worshipful heart. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the what? The sin of the world. Christians like to talk about sin. A friend of mine said to me today, he's fairly new at the church. He said, that was maybe your best sermon. He must want to borrow money or something. I don't know. But he said, that was the best. I love that. And I said, it's a sign you might be a Christian. (laughs) We got a good laugh out of it. All of that to say, Christians don't say, oh no, a sermon on sin. I'm going to feel so bad about myself. They're already over themselves. They, they, they get it like John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God. They're excited to see Jesus because he takes away sin. And so we need to understand the depth of the depravity, if you will, and the darkness of things. That's the very thing that causes us to see our need, which causes us to see Jesus for who he really is, which causes us to then to be catapulted into true worship. And so today might offend you might help you to know the most important thing right now, and that, that's you're not a Christian. I'm not here to judge that. God knows ultimately. But one thing we see in the Bible, people coming to grips with their sin, embracing the reality, and then it causes them to see Jesus for who he is, and they worship him like they wouldn't have otherwise. And I hope that happens today. Seven questions that might help us to understand that when we look in the mirror, we should say, I'm a sinner, and we know what is meant by that. Question number one, what is a sinner? What is a sinner? And typically, we think a sinner is anyone who does things that are worse than what? Than what we do, right? You've gone through this before. You know how the drill works. I just look at other people and say, yeah, that's bad the way that guy treats his wife. I wouldn't treat my wife that way. But you know there's somebody else who's doing a better job treating their wife a certain way than I am. And they can look at me and go, yeah, that guy's bad. He's a sinner because I don't treat my wife the way he treats his wife. And that kind of thing. 
or people who do those things that our culture would really frown on, on, on big crimes, big sins, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson, Joseph Stalin. They are definitely sinners. And they, and they are, by the way. But in answering the question, what is a sinner? We, we've got to take two steps back and say, what does the Bible teach about sin? What is sin? And this is going to rain on our parades. What is sin? If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, 1 John is pretty easy to find because if you go to the very end, you find the book of Revelation. It's 22 chapters, so you go to the beginning, beginning of Revelation. Then you find the book of Jude, which is only one chapter. And then 3 John, 2 John, you guessed it, 1 John. Okay, 1 John chapter 3. There are three words in 1 John 3 verse 4 that are really important. And I realize we're, we're, we're doing a little legwork here, but if we're going to understand what a sinner is, we need to understand what sin is. And 1 John 3 is very, very helpful and strategic. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. That's true enough, but that's not where I want you to focus. I want you to focus on the last three words. Sin is lawlessness. That's what I circled. Sin is lawlessness. This is kind of a paradigm wrecker when it comes to our, our pop culture paradigm. Sin is what those really bad guys do who get arrested. No, the Bible says sin is lawlessness. If I could say it 20 times in a row so it would stick in your mind, I would do it. But if you can't get it after about three more, you won't get it. Sin is lawlessness. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Now, we haven't figured it all out yet. What is sin? But we're on to something now. There's a law involved. There's a standard involved. And when we don't meet the standard, we're sinning. That's a lot different from me just thinking about my neighbor, unless my neighbor is the law or the standard. Now, please track with me. Don't check out. Keep this in your mind. Keep 1 John chapter 3 in your mind. Sin is lawlessness. Here's my next question for you, not on the outline. What's the law? What's the law? If you had to boil it all down in the Bible, if you wanted the, the cheat sheet, you wanted the cliff notes. I don't know if we have cliff notes version any, uh, cliff notes anymore, but uh, the boiled down, give me the answers. What does the divine law say? You can turn to Matthew 22 and look at it, or you can just listen if you'd like to. But in Matthew 22, we need to know what this law is, because if in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness, well, what's the law then? So we're trying to figure out what a sinner is, but we can't figure out what a sinner is unless we know what sin is. It's lawlessness. What's the law? This is what becomes so vital because when I'm talking to my next door neighbor, literally, he doesn't know that sin is lawlessness. Not to mention the fact that he doesn't know what the law is. If anything, he's better than some other guy he works with. Is that the law? Is the law, as long as I'm better than certain other people, then I'm okay? What we need to do, my friends, is we need to understand what the law of God is. And then we need to understand that sin is lawlessness. You with me? Come on. 
please, please be with me. Jesus is questioned by an attorney. We know they're sinners. Um, <laughs> right, I could say that. They're sinners. They deserve to go to hell. I mean, just go on record. All attorneys are sinners and all attorneys deserve to go to hell. And all pastors are sinners and all pastors deserve to go to hell. And we're going to get to that part in just a little while. But Jesus is put on the spot here in verse 36 of Matthew 22. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Matthew 22, verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he says, in the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Yes, stealing is a sin. The law is going to talk about that. But we need to go a step back so much further than that and say, wait a second. Most fundamentally, oh yes, murder is a sin. But most fundamentally, what does the law of God say? First and foremost, the law of God is love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With all that you are is what he's saying. With every ounce of your being, including your motives, everything about you is to, to, to honor God as God. That's the divine law. We learned this in the Old Testament. We're hearing Jesus affirm what the Old Testament says in the New Testament. The law of God is, here's the standard, treat God like he's God. In all of life, in everything that you do, in everything that you are, acknowledge that you're a creature, that everything that you have has been given to you, and everything, as far as your affection, attention, devotion, should be purely given to this God. That's the law. What's a sinner? Well, wait a minute. What's sin? Lawlessness. And what's the standard? Loving God with every ounce of your being in all that you do. Feeling good about that? If you're feeling good about that, you're a fool. <laughs> that everything that you've ever done and everything that you do, taking notes right now, listening to a sermon, is done with the ultimate pure motive of undefiled, undiluted, absolute worship of God? That's a pretty tough case to make. Me preaching this sermon, my motives are so pure. Everything about me is pure. I'm doing this with the absolute express purpose to worship my creator who's given... I'd be a fool to think that. The divine law is for us to treat God like he's God, as he said he is. And we'll talk about that as well. So what is a sinner? A sinner is someone who hasn't treated God like he's God, the way he's revealed himself. And to get ahead of ourselves, the Bible's going to say we're all sinners. No one in this room. No one on this planet has loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, not to mention loved his neighbor as himself. So we've all committed sin. We've all committed lawlessness. This is why I've tried to use other terms to describe sin because so many times in our culture we hear sin and we think, who knows what, better than my neighbor. I've tried to use things like it's the dethroning of God. Okay, We're not treating him the way he's revealed himself. 
giving him the honor that he deserves. It's, it's cosmic treason. God says, treat me like I'm God. Respond to me appropriately, and we don't. And so it's like trying to hijack the throne from God. We're not treating him like he's God. I try to describe us as rebels against the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're lawbreakers, each one of us. How's your self-esteem doing so far? It's not meant to be good. We're going to move our way towards seeing a Savior. What is sin? It's rebellion. It's law-breaking. Who's a sinner? That's the next question. Number two, who is a sinner? Well, the answer is simple. Everyone is a sinner. If you're in Romans, and you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. If you have a Bible we just gave you this morning, I looked up Romans. It's on page 804 in that white paperback Bible. Answering the question, who's a sinner? Well, the answer is everyone. Romans 3.23, Romans 3.10 and 11. Romans 3.23, you probably know it, many of you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's when, when I like to say with a smirk on my face that the Bible teaches universalism. Yeah, that everyone is a sinner. Romans has taken from chapter 1, 2, and 3 and put every single kind of person under the category and shown that everyone is a lawbreaker. No one loves God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what Romans has done, and we see it in 3.23. But how about 3.10? 3.10 and 11. Putting it in a little bit different angle, in 3.10 it says, As it is written, none is righteous. And by the way, the word righteous has to do with the law. It always has to do with the law. So he's dealing with this business of uh, law-breaking again, like we learned in First John. None is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks God. But let's make the rubber meet the road. How about cultural folk icons, Bible icons? We can all say, well, the Bible says no one. The Bible says all. Does that include Mother Teresa? You betcha it does. Gandhi? Yep. Abraham? Uh-huh. Read Romans 3 and 4. Mary, the mother of Jesus? You got it. As a footnote, by the way, in Luke chapter 1, she even talks about a need for a Savior. All have sinned. Everyone's committed cosmic treason. No one has loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength because everyone has broken the divine law. It's a real downer. The one exception would be Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, which is why we see Jesus as so unique. By the way, if Mother Teresa were a good person, Jesus wouldn't be so unique, and quite frankly, she wouldn't need Jesus. If Mary were not a sinner, she wouldn't need Jesus, and we wouldn't see Jesus as so unique, but she certainly thought she needed Jesus. And worship God for sending Jesus, her Savior. Now let's go to another question. Verse, uh, uh, question number three. In what sense are we sinners? In what sense are we sinners? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 would have us to know we're sinners by nature. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and following would have us to know we're sinners by nature. But then if we keep reading in Ephesians and we keep reading in Romans, we learn we're also sinners by choice. And so I'm a sinner because of my representative, the first, uh, the head of the human race, Adam. He led the human race into sin. But I'm also a sinner by choice. I sin. That's what God says. And I do want you to look at Romans chapter 1 as we talk about in what sense are we sinners. I've already alluded to this and by the way, some of you might have some objections, and I'm getting to at least one of those in just a moment. So hang in there. It might be your objection. Especially if you're thinking, man, this is a lot of theology. This is a lot to get my mind around. I think I can keep it simpler. I wish the pastor would give me the microphone and I could straighten it out for everybody. We'll get to that objection in just a little bit. But let's look at Romans 1 first. In what sense are we sinners? And Romans 1 really is just taking us back to what we talked about in the law but from a little bit different angle. In what sense are we sinners? Well, Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the just judgment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Once again, unrighteousness has to do with the law, so there's law-breaking problem. The wrath of God brings this. So in what sense are we sinners? Well, we're, we are lawbreakers. We are ungodly who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth so by their law breaking they're not loving god with heart soul mind and strength they suppress the truth verse 19 for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has it has shown it to them verse 20 for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse verse 21 though notice what it says for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And that's what I emboldened and underlined for the sake of our argument here. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. In what sense are we sinners? Well, well God has made himself known and we say, I've got a different perspective on God. It's Paul's way of saying what Jesus says, love God with your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love him with all that you are. And it's Paul's way of saying, in other words, negatively, you don't honor God as God. In what sense are we sinners? Well, God says, here's who I am. I've made myself known to you. Revelation. And we take that and we don't honor him as God. We don't respond appropriately. Oh, yes, I embrace you as the one true God and I give you my all. We don't do it. I keep reading, though says in verse 21, but they became futile in their thinking. So it has to do with a thinking problem. God's revealed himself a certain way, and we say, I don't think so. And their foolish hearts were dark in verse 22, claiming to be wise, claiming to have a better idea. Notice it's, it's God reveals himself, and foolishly we say, oh, I'm so smart, I have a better perspective on God. That's why I, I so oftentimes say, in response we say, but to me God is, which just shows us what sinners we are. God has made himself known so that he's clearly seen, and what do you hear Oprah say, and everyone else of her ilk, to me God is so foolish, and it shows we're sinners. In what sense are we Sinners. We're hearing from God and saying, I don't think so. 
That's why I like using descriptions like cosmic treason. Spiritual rebellion. We're breaking the divine law that says, see who I am and respond accordingly. Treat me like I'm God. Love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's fitting after all. I'm the creator and you're the creature. Not to mention I've made you in my image. And we profess to be wise and say, you know what? To me, God is different. Wow. In what sense are we sinners? We're high-handed sinners. And here's maybe one objection that's time to bring up. I could easily see how someone could be thinking, man, this makes my head hurt. Kind of makes my head hurt. Trying to explain all this stuff. All this theology stuff. I think I can explain it to you, Pat. You know, I understand that my actions might fall short. and I do some wrong things. But what I'm trusting in and what I'm confident about before, my, before God is He knows my heart. Heard that before? So number one thing I've heard is I'm a good person. The second most popular thing is, you know what, I, that's all fine and good if you want to try, try to think it all through. And maybe I do some wrong things now and then. But the reality of it is I, I know that God knows my heart. Huh. And that's a good thing? The assumption is that that's a good thing. The assumption is that's a good thing because the assumption is that you have a good heart. Dun, 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 dun. It's a bad, bad thing. Jesus would like to help us with our perspective on that. Matthew chapter 15. Or you could turn to Jeremiah 17. So this side of the room, Jeremiah 17. No, we won't do it that way. Jeremiah 17 is important to look at in Matthew 15. Maybe you want to turn to Matthew 15, write Jeremiah 17 in the margin. I'm not sure. But let's talk about this. Let, let's, those of you who are, who are Christians, you understand this. Let's equip ourselves in understanding what God says as we look in the mirror. Who am I? I'm a sinner. Um, what that has to do with our heart. Let's understand that that's not really what we want to say. You know, you know the greatest problem, quite frankly, is not my actions that fall short. My greatest problem is my heart. My greatest problem is God knows my heart. See, I can do lots of external relative good things. We see it all around us. The problem is the heart that shows that no one does good, no, not one. That's the very problem. But we are so forgetful, let's say, of a biblical worldview that we think people's hearts are good. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful, deceitful above all things. Huh. How about that? The heart is deceitful above all things. So the next time someone tells you to trust your heart, know that they have no clue what they're talking about. They're completely on drugs. Spiritually speaking. Trust your heart? That would be a really, really dumb idea. Because your heart is deceitful. Above all things. What's the most deceitful thing on the planet? Uh, the human heart. 
and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's kind of a hypothetical, but he goes on to explain that God can. See, my biggest problem isn't just what I do. My biggest problem is deeper than that. My biggest problem is who I am. And we're trying to communicate the gospel to people in a world where they think the biggest problem is what they do or what's been done to them, when the biggest problem is who we are. We're people who have hijacked God and tried to make ourselves God, and we don't love Him as the one true Creator. How about Matthew chapter 15, verse 17? This is a, a good one here from Jesus. It says in verse 17, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? You're thinking, if that's all you're going to read, Pastor, I need some more help. Uh, <laughs> it's just a kind of, you know, real basic uh, idea that this too will pass, you know. <laughs> what happens when you eat food? You eat it, it goes in your stomach, and then goes in the toilet. All right, then. That's not a very spiritual thing to say. But he's making a profound point when he says in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Oh, that is super helpful. And as a footnote, this shows us why legalism doesn't work. You do stuff on the outside. The, the problem is not the outside kind of thing. The problem is what's on the inside. And it shows itself up in what comes out. Jesus would say, Jeremiah got it exactly right. And so when you say, well, in what sense are we sinners? Let's just make sure we understand that we're sinners even at the very core of our being. Even in our hearts. Lawbreakers. Motives are problematic. The problem is bigger than we imagine. And that's what I would suggest to you. Most people just don't realize the gravity of the problem. And so we have all kinds of pseudo-saviors, including self-saviors. What we need to do is understand just how black things are and how bad things are. And then we'll have a true savior. And I'll admit to you, this is hard to do. It's hard. I'll, I'll just confess to you, it's hard to explain sin to a 21st century American. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. It's why we need the Holy Spirit to convict of sin. It's not only hard, it's near impossible to explain this. But I hope this is at least helping. Everybody's thinking, compare yourself to someone else. Everyone's forgotten what the standard is. Christians are saying, oh, you know, we don't do the law here. We just tell people to love God. Excuse me? That's what the law is. That's, the per that's my problem. <laughs> it's not so hard for me to do the external stuff. My biggest problem is the law of God, which is to love God. Failure, step one. Now let's go to another question. What are the effects of sin? What are the effects of sin? And this would take way too long for us to go into any kind of detail. Let me just give you a, a named list and then some passages. 
Alienation, Colossians 1.21, we're alienated and hostile in mind. That's an effect of sin. Romans chapter 5, we're enemies of God, verse 10. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 20, we're enslaved to sin. That's an effect of sin. We're enslaved. We're not free. We're enslaved to sin. Deserving of condemnation, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death, in Revelation chapter 20 verse, and, verse, and chapter 21. But then there are two more that I'd like you to actually look at, look up with me. Well, there's actually one more point. Effects of sin, there's a whole bunch. I'm not covering them all. We're not even dealing with the horizontal ones. But how about this one? Sin leaves us incapable of solving the problem. Sin leaves us unable to have a relationship with God really want you to get this one. Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and let's see how bad this is. And here's where I want you to go, man, this is awful. This is so bad. This is so dark. And then you're going to be so ready for Christian worship. Because you're going to say, Jesus is better than I even thought he was. Because sin is more devastating than I ever even imagined. It leaves us completely unable. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. You've probably looked at them before, but even if you have or haven't, let's look at them. What are the effects of sin? Well, it leaves us spiritually unable, incapable. Verse 1 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Okay, notice, dead, spiritually. What, 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 what do dead people do? They do nothing. They're incapable. You can yell at them. You can prod them. You can poke them. They're incapable. They're unable. Well, Paul's using the image, and he's not the only one to use it in the Bible, for spiritually dead people. Sin leaves you spiritually dead, and you're spiritually incapable of doing anything about your problem. You're like a corpse. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's got to realize there's conduct involved. Sinners aren't, not, aren't actually dead. I always think of horror movies like The Return of the Living Dead here, right? They're dead, but they're not. Oh, more brains, you know. We're not actually dead, but we're spiritually dead, just like in a horror movie. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, notice the universality, once lived lived in the passions or the lusts of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No one, no one gets a slip. No one gets an out. It's awful. This is why historically theologians uh, who, who've embraced this have said, you know, well, we believe in a doctrine we're going to call the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean people are as bad as they could be in their actions. Most of us aren't as bad as we could be in our actions. But what they mean by that is the very core, they're sinful and they're spiritually dead. And that's what leads them to have another doctrine they would categorize as total inability. Because of sin, we're rendered totally unable. And if you don't, if you don't think this has an effect on our evangelistic methods, you haven't been thinking about it. When I'm 
preaching to someone who's not a Christian. They're spiritually dead. And so I need the Spirit of God to enliven them. I need something supernatural to happen, like Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. I need the Spirit to enliven them. The effects of sin are awful. It wasn't that God looked down and said, Oh, look at Pat. I see that he's reaching out. And so I will save him. No. He sees Pat spiritually dead. You know, let's use the life raft illustration. Evangelists like to use that sometimes. So God throws the life raft out. The problem is I'm on the bottom of the ocean. I'm fish food. I'm dead in trespasses and sins. Well, by the way, if we mentally cross-reference to Romans chapter 5, I'm also an enemy. So I'm dead and giving him the finger. I wouldn't want him to save me anyway. Dead in trespasses and sins. I realize these are very offensive things to consider. These are very humbling things. But they should deal a death blow for all of us to... I'm a good person. We're not good people. That's why we need a good Savior. We don't need help. We need saving. That's what we need. This will help us to appreciate Jesus. Now, one other passage I'd like you to look at. We'll be back to Ephesians because the good news comes in Ephesians as well. I promise we'll get to it. But if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. If you back up to Ephesians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14, just, just a little bit more about how bad sin is. Just to understand what we've been saved from if we're Christians, what your next door neighbor is dealing with as you're trying to talk to them, like I've been lately. 1 Corinthians two fourteen is is one you really should remember. The natural person, okay, according to chapter 1 and chapter 2, that would be an, an, an unsaved person. The Spirit of God has not enlivened them. The natural person, notice, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They, they don't accept them. For they are folly or foolishness to him. But then keep reading. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Not able. Those theologians who said the doctrine of total inability, they're right. They got it from this passage. Sin has so ravaged the human race and it has so ravaged us that it's not only that we are spiritually dead, we're unable to respond to the gospel apart from divine intervention. I wholeheartedly believe in the doctrine of the inability of humanity. Dead in trespasses and sins. Unable. Incapable. It's awful. And I know the list could go on, but at least understand how dark this is. It's not like I just need a little more convincing. I'm generally a good person, but I had a bad environment, so I need some help. No, I've got a heart problem. I need supernatural work in my life. Rubber meets the road here. Here's here's something real practical for you. Therefore, the next time anyone in this room hears someone say, how is it, how is it that bad things could happen to good people? 
you are fully equipped to give an appropriate answer to that question, right? You're totally ready. I hope you do it with winsomeness and a smile on your face or maybe with a tear in your eye, given the situation. But when you hear someone, and maybe this is number three for the most frequently heard thing in my whole life, how is it that bad things can happen to good people? You can appropriately say, that's the wrong question. No one does good, no, not one. You, you, you can say, the real question is, how could it be possibly that a good thing could ever happen to any of us? Because, by the way, we're, we're sinners deserving the wrath of God. And you'll be able to give an answer that God is long-suffering and patient and kind. But we have begun to talk like pagans. We... Christians, and we say things like this, or people say it in front of us at dinner parties, and we go, worse yet, our young people go off to college, and whether it's in philosophy class, or English class, or anthropology class, or I don't care what class, one of the number one favorite things for antagonistic professors to say in an attempt to undermine mom and dad's Christian worldview is that question. Well, how is it that a God of love who is all-powerful could have such bad things happen to us? And whether your children are Christians or not, It'd be really nice if they could spot a weasel when they hear one. It'd be really nice if they could at least say, that's a real stupid argument. Because if you know anything about a Christian worldview that's like Christianity Basic 101, there's this thing called the fall, human rebellion, sin, and the just judgment of God. And so the real question, Mr. Professor, is how could anything good ever happen? I realize it's more complicated than that and there's all kinds of issues involved. But come on, <laughs> you know? <laughs> this is like basic stuff. I mean, I think there's probably a special place in hell for preachers who tell people they're good and who ask questions like, how could a God of love allow bad things to happen to good people? And I say that tongue-in-cheek understanding. I too should be in hell apart from the gospel. But come on. Let's act like Christians. Let's act like Christians. We know why bad things happen. We have met the enemy. And the enemy is? Yeah, mirror, mirror on the wall. The enemy is us. Number five, what can be done? Oh, I'm so glad for this question. Ephesians chapter two, what can be done? Oh, by the way, before we get to the good part, as if you thought it would never come, now I'm delaying it even more. You know, you stop and ask the question, okay, then what? If this is really true, dead in trespasses and sins, enemies of God alienated, estranged, incapable, somebody's going to say, well, I, I go to church. 
That's what I can do. And you should be going, what? If you're a thinking person and you're connecting the dots, you go to church. I thought the divine law was love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not go to church. It still doesn't deal with the sin problem because sin is lawlessness. It doesn't even compute. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, 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 you, you know, my solution to the problem is what can be done? I'll, I'll go on a, on, a, on a spiritual pilgrimage. I'll be philanthropic. And you're going, what? See, it does hurt my head because I do things like that. This doesn't, this doesn't make sense. God didn't say to do that. He said to love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength all that you are. That's the requirement. And we're incapable of meeting the requirement now. Now we're in total trouble. We need, we're in the, we're in the, the mess. And we can't get out. We need God to do something. This is what's going to fuel worship. We need God to crash in and to smash in. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, I wanted to go. Yeah, let's go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. We read the bad news in verses 1, 2, and 3. But here, this is so awesome. What can be done but God? Best two words in the whole Bible, right? But God. Best word in the Bible. But But God, being rich in mercy, notice this, but God in a strong sense, he's going to be rich in mercy and rich in power. It's not God, the effeminate Jesus, who's always a gentleman and knocks on the door. Please don't ever buy that picture. (sighs) It's not it. Oh, would you like to let me into your heart? Hello? By the way, taken from Revelation, and that's not the image of Revelation, because that's Jesus knocking on the door of a church, by the way, not your heart. Sorry to spoil the picture for you. But anyway, but God, you're dead. And he's not going, well, would you like me to inconvenience you? I'm a gentleman. I'm going to stop doing that. But, oh, you got to be kidding me, you know? I have to make sure they're willing. When we're going to read the rest of this, it is so against your will, it's not even funny. Footnote, I can talk about how God changes the will and nuance that at another time. But when you just feel the force of Ephesians chapter 2, this is not, well, I'm going to see if they're really willing and then do this. Please look, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Right? He's not waiting. You're dead in trespasses and he does this. Even when we were dead in trespasses, notice what it says, made us alive together with Christ. Notice it's all God. Otherwise it wouldn't be called grace. It would be called a reward. Oh, I saw Pat was willing and able and reaching for me. And so I rewarded his reach with salvation and that would be called earnings. It isn't that. Even when we were dead, dead. He made us alive. That's grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Please see that you will never, ever, ever, ever see this or appreciate this unless you understand the first three verses that are so dark and so bad. 
But here we can, we can embrace this. We can, we can get worked up about this. Verse, uh, verse five ends with, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in union with Christ. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now we're ready to hear those verses we know. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that, that this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What can be done but God can be done? That's what we need to have done. Religion isn't going to cut it. Isaiah tells us our religious good works are like filthy rags. All we need is God to do something. Recently, we read 1 Peter chapter 1 for our scripture reading in the mornings. I love the way I put it. It said, he caused us to be born again. John chapter 3 would be the same thing. The spirit of God goes where he wishes. And what we see are the after effects of the spirit of God. What can be done is God can supernaturally take the spirit of God and regenerate and bring new life. brings about faith, faith in the finished work of Christ. And now you say, I love Jesus like I wouldn't have otherwise. If I stand here and say to you, you're a good person, and God sees what a good person you are. In fact, he saw how special you were, and so he sent his son. That's paganism in comparison to Christianity. And you know what? If we have the right piano playing and the right kind of emotional things going on, we might be able to call what we do then worship. But from a biblical Christian vantage point, we see that indeed, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we'll say, let's not be like those denominations that have changed the words to that song to help people with their self-esteem. We'll say, no, we want it to say wretch. But that might hurt people's feelings. Yeah, it just might. And it might lead them to seeing their need for a Savior. What can be done? God is graciously in Christ, wonderfully. Did you, did you catch the, in, uh, the, the emphasis on His mercy and His great love? If God's love saved us through Christ because we were lovely, it wouldn't be that kind of great love. But it's that kind of great love. It's that kind of great love. Next question. I don't want to move on. But next question, number six, are Christian sinners? Are Christian sinners? If anybody's saying no right now, I'd love to talk to any of your family members. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 is enough to answer the question. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, present tense, the foremost. King James says, chief. Paul doesn't say, I used to be. He says, of whom I am, chief. I am foremost. 
This is an important one. Even as you think through your daily living. I still need Christ. It's not that he got rid of the past stuff in my life. And now I'm going it alone. No. I need Jesus to save me from the sins I'll commit tomorrow. Quite frankly, the ones I'm committing right now. Again, the standard is love God with all that you are. All of the time. Perfectly and completely. This is where I stand before you and say, Hello, my name is Pat. And I have a problem. And you say, Hello, Pat. But it's, Hello, my name is Pat. And I am a sinner. Saved by grace, yes. And my sins have been dealt with, yes. This is an important one. I know not too long ago, um, an author was in our city at least a couple of times, and he I had a novel idea that Christians aren't sinners and Christians should never call themselves sinners. And some of you might still be grappling with some of those issues. I just simply submit to you 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And uh, the historic Protestant view would be Paul's view as well. I'm a sinner. And apparently it's healthy for me to be able to say that. Or Paul wouldn't have said that under inspiration. Final question. How do Christians combat sin? How do Christians combat sin? Well, this could be another series. I start on my list with the gospel. It's so interesting that Paul writes the gospel to the Roman Christians. And part of what he deals with is even the struggle that we might have with sin. One thing that happens when you, when you focus on Christ and what he has done, and you understand like what's taught in Romans chapter 6, you understand you've been united to Christ in his death, Therefore, you've died to sin. You've been united to Christ in His resurrection. Therefore, you've been raised with Christ. You're not a slave to sin anymore. And the gospel helps me understand that and to know that. The gospel helps me to understand as well because of being in Christ, I have also been given the Spirit of God. And so the gospel unpacks that for me. I have the Spirit of God. Christ has given us His Spirit. And now all of a sudden I'm into other things and now I've got the Spirit in my life and I can have the fruit of the Spirit manifested in my life including things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And I fight sin because of the value of the Spirit's work in my life which is again tied to the Gospel. On my list as well, how do Christians fight sin? We fight sin in the church, with the church's help, not alone, however you'd like to say it. The body of Christ, together, we have one another's. We have accountability even for sin, like in Matthew 18. God didn't save us to then live independent Christian lives and fight sin all alone. It's pretty much a guarantee, therefore, if you're fighting sin all alone, you're probably having a pretty tough go of it. Another way we fight sin is by actually fighting. Meaning, it's, it's not let go and let God because now that I know I'm in, everything's fine and I just kind of kick back and do cruise control. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul, very graphically, using boxer kind of terminology where he gives himself a black eye. 
using a vivid image. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's this kind of tenacious, using a physical image for something that's probably not physical, but it's this tenacious, serious, I'm, I'm committed for this kind of discipline because I don't want to sin. There's some perspiration involved. Scripture helps us to fight sin as well. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? The answer is by guarding it according to your word. So you see how all these things come together. I want to know what the Scripture says. I want to do what the Scripture says as far as hiding the word of God in my heart and, and, and allowing the, the Scripture to lead me and to guide me. And, he, and it's going to work in concert with the Holy Spirit and it's going to work in concert with the church body. And I suppose the list could go on, but we'll stop there. As I said, I wanted to end by hearing from John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who is so nice. And we think he's cute and he tells us we're cute too. Now that seems sacrilegious, but I think that's the gist of how we often think. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we've heard it so many times, it doesn't really pack the punch maybe. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the penalty for our cosmic treason. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the consequence of sin, which is the just wrath of God that should be on our heads. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our spiritual deadness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our enemy status and makes us God's friend. And he's using that kind of verbiage, just worship verbiage. Behold the Lamb of God. I know that it is because then in Revelation chapter 5, you see in this amazing picture of, of heavenly worship, they're saying, Behold the Lamb of God who was what? Slain. And then he goes on to talk about being, he's slain for sin. He's slain for rebellion. He's slain to make atonement so that there can be forgiveness. And so what I'll suggest to you is to the degree and in proportion that we understand the significance of our sin, we are then equipped and enabled to appreciate the greatness of our Savior. This is why Christians... Don't mind talking about sin. This is why Christians say, tell me more. Can we sing the wretch song again? <laughs> because we understand reality, which helps us to understand reality. And it makes us real worshipers. This is why Paul you know, in Ephesians chapter 1, knowing what's coming in Ephesians chapter 2, what does he do in chapter 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's all I can remember off the top of my head. But he's just, he's just going on. In the Greek text, it's, it's without, a, without any break. He's just one long run-on sentence. It's worship. Worship. So we talk about sin so that we can worship the risen Christ who is our life.
Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus into this world to save sinners like us. And thank you for the great reminders that you give us in Scripture, even for the Apostle Paul to say that he's the chief of sinners. And may we walk in humility because of this. And may we walk with a, a certain sense of, of worshipfulness because of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And, and also, God, please help us. Help us to, to even work hard and, and work prayerfully to be able to speak appropriately where we have opportunity to speak. When people around us say they're good and people around us say all sorts of things that reveal ignorance and help us to remember that we're ignorant apart from your grace and that we deserve to go to hell as much as the next person but help us to be therefore like like beggars who found food and who can show other beggars where they can find food too make us these kinds of people even this week in Omaha, Nebraska in Jesus name, Amen